BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. For some weeks, maybe months now, I've been subscribing to a, uh, an online newsletter. comes in my email box pretty much every day. It's called The Writing, T-H-E-R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. The website is The writing.com. And Howard Paulskin is the president of The Writing. The Writing, by the way, is also the uh, Twitter handle, as well as Howard's P-O-L-S-K-I-N, Howard P-O-L-S-K-I-N on Twitter. And Howard's on the line with us. Howard, welcome to the program. Nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us today. Tell us how The Writing came about. It came about the morning after Trump's election in 2016. I woke up and I thought, How the hell did this happen? I thought I was a smart guy. I read the New York Times, read Time Magazine. I watch the NBC Nightly News. And I just didn't understand it. And I started this journey of discovery going to places like Infowars, Breitbart, The Daily uh, Caller, places I had never been before, to understand what the right was thinking. And I thought, wow, I wish someone would aggregate all these headlines every day so I could be informed and there was nothing there. And I thought, well, it's a tough job and I guess I got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't pay for this to get this right. I mean, I've been getting it from you for a while. And this is free. This is a free newsletter. My accountant doesn't fix my calls anymore. (laughs) I get it. I get it. Well, hopefully, uh, I don't know if your advertising's supported or not, but hopefully, uh, you know, you can turn this into a business. Hopefully one day. Yes. Yes. Yeah, there you go. We're talking with Howard Polskin. He's the president of the writing, T-H-E-R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G.com, which summarizes, you know, what's going on with the right wing every day. Howard, what are the principal, first of all, just give us an overview of what a person reading the writing might discover about the right wing of American media. You know, what are the, are the top stories from the last day or two or three that pop to mind? Well, last week, the top stories were the election was rigged. I mean, this was just five straight days of this uh, almost poison coming out from the right. It was very disturbing. This week, anyone going to the writing the last two today and yesterday would see that is dissipating. And I think, you know, we're entering a new phase on how the right is going to frame this. I think there's going to be more attacks on Biden more, definitely more attacks on Fauci. I think what comes through pretty clearly from reading the writing, I don't care at what point in the last three and a half years that I've been following the right-wing media, it's that don't tread on me, live free or die. And that really pertains when you think of the masking issue. Don't tell me to wear a mask. You're infringing on my liberty. It's my right to decide that. So this gets baked into a lot of the coverage of, um, from the right. And I think those kinds of stories are pretty popular. When I think of right-wing media and the stories and memes and positions and postures that are held there, and not even just print media, but, you know, in, in my business, in radio and television as well, it seems to me that there are a couple of different factions. And I'd love to get your take on the extent to which 
these are really all one thing or that they really are all this discrete and the extent to which they may compete with each other or have synergy with each other. There is the racist faction, the white supremacy faction that goes back to the founding of the republic. You know, oh my God, Kamala Harris, uh, you know, a black woman on the ticket, et cetera, et cetera. And we saw them go completely hysterical when America elected a black president in 2008 with uh, Barack Obama. Then there is, I refer to them as the cokehead faction, the Freedom Caucus kind of guys in Congress. The promotion, you know, when David Koch ran for vice president on the libertarian ticket in 1980 and said, we need to end all public education, we need to end all taxation, we need to end all government regulatory agencies, the FDA should be, should be shut down, the EPA should be shut down, or the FDA should at least be privatized, that basically, you know, the only government we need is police and army and that's it. And so you've got that kind of libertarian element that seems to be, you know, what you're talking about here, the don't tread on me, which is, you know, and these right wing billionaires, you know, the Mercers and the Cokes and whatnot have been funding these organizations like Freedom Works and others for a long, long time. And this is their principal meme is that freedom means that the government doesn't hurt you, it doesn't restrain you, and it also doesn't help you. And then there's just the angry right, the you know, not even necessarily the racist right, but the men who are pissed off at women, the white guys who feel that Hispanics coming here are trying to steal their jobs. And it's not even, you know, racial hatred. It's just kind of some sort of visceral fear. And it seems to really be extant in the lower middle class among the white population. Those are at least three that I can easily identify. Are there others that I'm missing? And how do they work together or compete? First of all, that was a beautiful assessment. My hat's off to you. I think there is the, there's also a, a kind of a saner thread that goes through right-wing media, and that is smaller government. You know, there's that faction that's out there. And smaller government translates a lot of times into anti-environmentalism, climate change denial, because that means more taxes to fight that. Yes, of course, they're all competing for an audience. But as we've just seen in the election, there's a huge pool of listeners and readers out there. Half the country are receptive to these thoughts. Mm -hmm. And right now, as we all know, Fox News and its online component, foxnews.com, they're the 8,000-pound gorilla out there. And then there's everyone else. All right. It's absolutely fascinating. What are the trends? What are, you know, uh, often things are signaled in the right wing media before they become real. What are you seeing right now that gives you pause? Boy, there's a lot. Every morning, I, it's always an eye opener, like what scares me. And I think the animosity towards Joe Biden, I think that's pretty scary. And I think it's going to get much worse. Once the right wing media drops their election is rigged narrative, they're going to focus more on Joe Biden, and they're going to come after Kamala Harris as well. Those seems like pretty yeah. good targets to me. And yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And we saw this with the Clinton presidency. We saw it with the Obama presidency. Delegitimize the person. You know, go after the person. I mean, you know, Trump's questioning Obama's citizenship, essentially, was simply metaphor. You know, he's not really our and, president. And the, and the message of unity has been attacked for the past week that they just that that is just widespread like that is their their thing that's the yeah yeah fascinating if you don't subscribe to it uh, i recommend you check it out it's it's free it's free. fascinating it's a daily it's a daily uh, wake-up call it's called the writing t-h-e-r-i-g-h-t-i-n-g as in the writing.com and you can sign up for it. that's also the twitter handle howard polskin the president of the organization. Howard, thanks for dropping by. Good talking Thank to you. Thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate it. Be well. Be safe. This Back at is you. the Tom Hartman Program. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag, you're it. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, Chris in Seattle. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I've moved to San Diego now, but oh, okay. I think it's the Democrats who are responsible for this. You don't blame a drug addict for being a drug addict, but you do blame his enablers. You said it earlier, it's turned to infomercial, to entertainment. 
Rudy Giuliani, you look at that press conference, we, got, we need some people who are frothing at the mouth. Why aren't we out there right now yelling and screaming about what they're doing with the Fed? Okay, they get all the coverage. Well, because I am. <laughs> yes, you are. I know, but you're not frothing at the mouth. You know, so our leaders aren't. Our leaders aren't. Yeah. Joe Biden should be out there screaming and yelling. How did Donald Trump come to power? He's a reality TV president. We are a reality TV world now. This is what gets, as you said, you know, it used to be about journalism. Now it's about entertainment. And the, cover, right. the news isn't going to cover you if you're being appeasing. Okay, they want somebody who can fight. This is why people falsely believe that the Republicans are better on security than the Democrats, even though we're the ones who went out and got uh, uh, bin Laden and we're the ones who actually go to World War Two. Yes, exactly. But we don't sing our own praises. We don't get out there. You know, you've got Republicans who have been screaming, lock her up with no evidence, no proof, nothing for years even through this entire presidency. Why aren't we out here screaming, you know, our leaders? We, why isn't Nancy Pelosi, when the day after uh, Obama was inaugurated, you had the Republican leadership in force out there screaming and yelling about how they were going to stop this. And, and you know, you, I've heard you say many times that uh, the Republicans are playing chess and the Democrats are playing Checkers, we're not even playing the same game. They're playing issues of nuclear war, and we're playing appeasement. Until we get out there and realize that the world doesn't work the way it used to, okay? It's not the 1950s and 60s anymore. It is about sensationalism. And, you know, sometimes, you know, that's why Clinton was who he was. He was one of those few guys, when he took on Chris Wallace, even after his presidency, you don't see other leading Democrats doing that. I just, until we catch on, that, man, we've got to, you know, um, we've got to be more Republican than the Republicans. We've got to get out there. Well, there's a a fine line, Chris, and this is that my whole Wetico rant. You don't want to become the people you're fighting. Um, But I do agree that the the Democrats, number one, should use a lot more drama and theater in what they're doing and no more of these damn boring speeches where Chuck Schumer is reading some monotone crap on the floor of the Senate and hoping that it gets covered. And number two, uh, that we need to be managing expectations. The Democrats need to be out there right now saying uh, loudly, Steve Mnuchin just set up the destruction of the economy starting in the first week of January. And by the way, what's going to happen three weeks later? Joe Biden gets sworn in. So Steve Mnuchin just started the process. And it takes a few weeks for these kind of things to work their way through the economy, in some cases, a few months. So if you shut down the Fed on the first of the year, probably the major impact is going to be in April, in March or April or May. And so the Democrats need to be pointing that out. Get ready for another Great Depression. Get ready for another major stock market crash because Donald Trump set the table and Steve Mnuchin just, you know, knocked all the China on the floor to mangle a metaphor. But you, you absolutely, absolutely get what I'm saying. And, and, yeah. and I'm with you. Chris, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Well said. Angela in coming Georgia. Hey, Angela, what's on your mind today? Uh, yes. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm, I'm, uh, it's been a while, but I just wanted to. I don't want to sound like a negative Nelly, and I don't want to be accused of bashing the Democratic Party or anything, but I, I'm saying this to hopefully have someone here in Georgia listen. I mean, I've lived in Georgia in, in all my life, in the South all my life, and I'm telling you, uh, the way things are going now, Ossoff and Warnock, and, and the, as far as the uh, Senate runoff is concerned, they're going to lose, and they're going to lose big. All of the signs are there. Uh, things are not going as they should be going. To, to what are you basing from, that conclusion on, Angela? I'm sorry, we uh, just have we uh, have about a minute to the break here. Okay, very quickly. Uh, number one, the uh, the polls are showing it that it's neck and neck, 48, 48, 49, 49 between Ossoff and Warnock. When living here in the South. It's when you're looking at um, a Democrat against a Republican, especially if one of the Democrats is African-American, if it's neck and neck, they're go- the liberal, the Democrat, the African-American, they're going to lose. 
You cannot have it that close and expect that that is the way things are going to to uh, end up. It, it, that, there is no comfort level in that. If it's that close, they're going to lose, and they're going to lose big. I look at things such as the SSB in Mississippi. I look at things as Jamie Harrison in South Carolina. I look at Doug, was it Doug Jones in Alabama. Mm-hmm. When it's that close, it, they're going to lose, and they're going to lose big. But also the common people are not sitting and talking about this the way they should be. And the commercials that they're putting on, Ossoff and Warnock are putting on, they're too softball. They're being savage, and they're not fighting back. Oh my. Angela, thank you for the report from Georgia. All the more reason we all need to be using whatever tools we have, social media or whatever else it is, to, to support Warnock and Ossoff. You're listening you. to the Tom Angela. Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week, right here. It's the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Joy Ann Reed. It's titled The Man Who Sold America. This is from the introduction, titled Welcome to Gotham. To truly understand Donald Trump, you need to have lived in New York City in the 1980s and 90s when his businesses and marital escapades were a tabloid staple. Or maybe you just need to have grown up on Batman. Gotham City, which the brooding billionaire Bruce Wayne polices as his vigilante alter ego, is an exaggerated dystopian send-up of old New York. It's filled with over-the-top villains who, like Batman, possess no actual superpowers, but get by on their cleverness, their ostentatious wealth, and their ability to wreak havoc on the urban landscape. Donald Trump seems ripped right out of that comic book supervillain universe. With his cantilever hairstyle, weirdly long signature neckties, bizarre syntax, and penchant for slapping his surname on anything he's connected with, from buildings and golf courses to bottled water board games, and for a time a sham university that promised anyone could learn to be just like the Donald, Trump and the cast of characters surrounding him could fit right in with Joker, Riddler, Penguin, and Lex Luthor. Trump has existed on the outskirts of American celebrity and popular culture for the lifespans of most Americans under the age of 40. He made cameos in movies like Home Alone 2 and on TV shows such as The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He was in the guest chair on The Phil Donahue Show and The Oprah Winfrey Show, and he performed mock fights with World Wrestling Entertainment Chairman Vince McMahon on multiple episodes of WrestleMania. He even pretended to buy WWE's lucrative Monday Night Raw franchise in an elaborate ruse in 2009, which tanked the entertainment company's stock price, prompting Trump to quickly pretend to sell it back for twice the price. Despite his history of housing discrimination against black tenants and his full ad in the 1980s, full page ad in the 1980s calling for a group of black and brown teenagers to be put to death for, the, for a gang rape they didn't commit, Trump managed to work his way into popular mainstream, mainstream popular culture. Early on, he was a tabloid-friendly rogue and celebrity hanger-on, and later the king of the B-list stars who jockeyed for his approval on Celebrity Apprentice. Had he not signed on to the racist birther conspiracy claiming that America's first black president, Barack Obama, was not born in the United States, and plunged headfirst into the morass of anti-immigrant xenophobia that helped him win the presidency, the old Donald Trump might have carried on. He may have remained a cultural gadfly, that peculiar brand of celebrity whose views on everything from geopolitics to the Oscars are sought out for no particular reason other than that he is famous and quotable. But Donald Trump did become president, and so here we are. As a candidate, Trump offered Republicans the taste of the celebrity status that Ronald Reagan had given them, something normally reserved for Democrats. That's what attracted Sam Nunberg, the 38-year-old political advisor who toiled on Trump's warm-up attempts at a presidential runs and on the real presidential deal until he lost a war with Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski and was fired in the summer of 2015. Nunberg says Lewandowski saw to it that old racist posts on his Facebook page surfaced. He later apologized for those posts. And though Nunberg readily says that Trump screwed him, he claims he'd vote for him again in 2020 because Trump has delivered on Republican policies and judicial nominations. I knew our campaign wasn't doing well when I went into our restaurant after he announced, Nunberg said. The TV was on CNN and he was on and people were watching. These were people who normally wouldn't give a S word, but they were watching him. Trump wasn't just another politician doing a TV hit. 
He was an American mogul, an entertainer, Nunberg said. And he wasn't rich from making microchips or selling stocks. It was from building, construction. It was this image of success, of him being rich and he can make you rich. We were the WWE, Fox News version of the Obama campaign in the beginning, and I mean that as a compliment. It was aspirational. It was, we can fight the system. Nunberg was raised on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and nurtured on conservative talk radios, strident support for Israel and suspicion of the Middle East. After volunteering for Mitt Romney's 2008 campaign, he worked for right-wing lawyer Jay Sekulow during the 2010 fight to prevent the construction of a mosque near Ground Zero, the site of 9-11. He says Trump wrote a BS letter at the time offering to buy the land where the mosque was to be built, but the offer was just a PR stunt. Nunberg's parents were lawyers, and so he became one too. His father had worked for a law firm that Trump and his father had used for real estate deals. But Nunberg didn't meet Trump in person until he was introduced to him in 2010 by yet another Gotham City character, Roger Stone, the villain with the Richard Nixon tattoo on his back. I wanted to win a national election and thought Trump could win, Nunberg says of his eagerness to sign on. I thought it was cool that Obama went on the late night shows. I thought the John McCain ad showing Obama speaking to millions of people and showing Paris Hilton and slamming him as a Hollywood celebrity was the dumbest effing thing I'd ever seen. He all but screamed at the time, you just won him millions of votes. Nunberg thought his party was living in the 1950s. And though Trump was his own version of the madman era, to Nunberg, he was a madman for the 21st century. He and Trump shared a sensibility. He likens to a retired New York City firefighter or cop who mainlines Fox News, plus Rush Limbaugh and Mike Levin on talk radio, and thinks to himself, this country has gone to crap, and we need a guy in the White House who's willing to punch a few holes in the wall. It's Joanne Reed's book, The Man Who Sold America. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Back to domestic issues, too. Donald Trump is whining about Fox News costing him the 2020 election. Seriously, he tweeted this. He said, uh, Fox News daytime ratings have completely collapsed. Weekend daytime, even worse. Very sad to watch this happen, but they forgot what made them successful. What got them there? See, Donald thinks he's responsible for Fox News doing well. They were doing well long before Donald. Anyhow, he says they, they forgot the golden goose. The biggest difference between the 2016 election and 2020 was Fox News. Fox News, by the way, has this uh, subscription service, Fox Nation, that's six bucks a month. That's a lot of money. You can get a million people sending you six bucks a month, six million dollars a month, month after month after month, if you can get several million people. And their conversion rate, they, they give people free trials of Fox Nation online, and their conversion rate from free to paid is over 80%. It looks like Trump is planning on cutting into that substantially, and this is what I've been predicting, that he's going to be doing a, a television network. Jeff in San Francisco. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind? 
Well, it's a great show today. You know, one of my uncles who was doing very well in his retirement because of the New Deal, he's probably breaking in 50K a year with his Teamsters pension, Social Security, and he's 95. So he's got, you know, 30 years of very lush, but the only book he probably ever read was None Dare Call It Treason. And I remember the day he brought it over. And I remember the day he brought it over to my mom and dad, and they just kind of rolled their eyes politely. And yeah. uh, Is that back but, in the uh, 50s or the early 60s? Oh, that, that was the 70s. Yeah, it was still around. And, and you know, so it's, John and, you Stillman. know, he, he went from uh, a John Bircher to he loved Rush Limbaugh. And my mom used to just get so upset. She goes, don't you know that they don't want you to have that big fat pension you get or anything? Oh, I worked my, you know, I drove three million miles for that. And it's like, we know you did. Yeah. You deserve every bit of it. But uh, the reason I would call is, you know, the saying is that somebody shows you who they are, believe them. And I don't like mm-hmm. Biden's cabinet. Well, we don't know How his cabinet we gonna, yet. Well, the ones that they're suspecting of, there's a lot of oil and pharmaceuticals and well, let's there. let's wait. Let's let's give him some time. I mean, the, you know, one more thing. I, you know, I, I fully expect that there's going to be some of that kind of stuff going on and probably a lot of it. I mean, that's just been the way it's been since 1980. But, you know, I am so relieved that Donald Trump is not going to be president anymore, that I'm willing to put up with a lot for at least a few months, Jeff. I mean, let's 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 hold let's hold off on the circular firing squad for a little while, okay? Okay, all right, all right. We, I thought we had the we could talk now that we had the. I think well, we, we have, can. I mean, you know, you you said what you said, and I didn't say don't say that. I just said I'm not going to go there. All uh, right. You know, I, I have one more thing. One, why don't, sure. I, I would like to see uh, I like to see AOC and Ro Khanna both uh, primary Chuck and Nancy in 2022. Because the only thing power understands is the demand, and I think that would get their attention. I would support so, both of those efforts. And, you know, and I think that... Well, I'm putting it out Chuck there for everybody been, to hear and spread the word. Yeah, Chuck, <laughs> Chuck has been so, breathtakingly ineffectual. I used to be on the press release list from his office. I have uh, complained uh, once on the air, uh, several times in private, to three other United States senators, uh, Democrats, begging them to tell Chuck Schumer that the press releases that he's sending out every day can't be printed. They're formatted in a way that makes them unprintable. And he's taking really simple stuff that Donald Trump would turn into a tweet and making it 12 paragraphs, which nobody ever reads. And why don't you get your damn act together in terms of public relations and messaging? And I keep, you know, saying, Saying this, And finally, about a month ago, I just put Chuck Schumer on my spam list because I couldn't do anything. You know, I get these press releases and I would have to spend 15 minutes reading it and, and go through and highlight the, the 12 relevant words. And then I couldn't print it. I mean, it was just because uh, I had to print stuff out for this show. It was just it was so sad that, that these guys are like, you know, living in the 1970s or something. I, you know, it's just mind boggling. Jeff, thank you for the call. I would like to see I'd love to see Ro Khanna as the senator from California, although there's others, you know, who uh, Barbara Lee, Karen Bass, there's some very, very good candidates. Senate Majority Leader, I'll take anybody. Jules in Whittier, California. Hey, Jules, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Uh, thanks, Tom. Just a couple of points. This Cold War that the Republican Democrats, it's guerrilla politics. Uh, Trump thrives on misinformation. And truth is the currency of a democracy. The fourth pillar of democracy is the media, like you. And the Pope made an analogy one time, he was talking about a different matter, but he said that taking a hatchet blow to the, imagine that one of the pillars is a tree, taking a hatchet blow to the roots of democracy. That's what the GOP is doing. Uh, Trump couldn't do it alone. It's the GOP. And then uh, my last uh, last, uh, point is impeachment. They didn't allow documents. They didn't allow live living witnesses. And they didn't impeach him. They should have. But my vote counts. You know, I voted against Trump. And I don't want to see my vote, and and most of the country doesn't want to see their vote disregarded by the GOP. You know, this is a George Orwell party where truth is lies and lies is truth. And that's those are the points that I wanted to make this morning. Yeah. Good. Good points, Jules. Good points all. And, you know, I don't want to sully the reputation of George Orwell, who was a great anti-fascist and really saw the future. And his book, 1984, is still, you know, vital reading. 
And I would say that probably 1984 was the year in the United States when 1984, the novel, really started being put into place by the Reagan administration. And this has been the model. This has been the game plan for the Republican Party ever since. Did you know that Ronald Reagan committed treason to become president in 1980 and George Herbert Walker Bush was in on it and he avoided being prosecuted for this in 1992 with a little help from Bill Barr? It's on page 116 of my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. So Donald Trump is trying to commit treason right now, and his Republican allies are in on it with him. Along with a no shortage of right-wing hate radio hosts and Fox Network and others who are actively taking a sledgehammer to our democracy, this is wrong. And every American should condemn it. We have so far two Republican senators, Ben Sass of Nebraska and Mitt Romney of Utah, who have come out and said, yeah, Joe Biden won the election. How do you have a functioning Democratic Republic when the guy at the top insists on ignoring the basic tenets of democracy or of what Jefferson referred to as Republican government? This is how countries die. There's a great piece over at medium.com uh, written by a person who lived in Sri Lanka talking about how in Sri Lanka something very similar happened. The loser in an election protested and squealed and yelled and got their supporters all cranked up and ultimately lost. But four months later, there was this giant bombing that killed a couple of hundred people at a church. And that provided the, the necessary crisis moment for that original guy who lost, for his right-wing supporters to come in and take over the government and, and start imprisoning and killing people. I mean, that's where we're at right now. Trump is not going to be successful in this. But in the process, he is doing great damage to our republic. And he's doing it because he's trying to stay out of jail. And I suppose I can understand that. If I was in elected office, if I was the president, and I knew that if I lost the election, I would be going to prison, then, you know, pretty much nothing would be off the table. Well, you know, I can't, it's hard to speak for myself, but there have been no shortage of people in the history of the United States, including the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, who were willing to put themselves in, well, I mean, they all were not just sentenced to prison, when they signed that document. They were sentenced to hang, every single one of them. Articles of sedition and treason were drawn against every signer of the Declaration of Independence. Every single one, if they were caught by the British, was to be hanged. And they knew it when they signed that document. So for me to you know, just be real facile and say, well, maybe I would you know, screw the country in exchange for staying out of jail, I don't know if I would or not. I, those are those horrible things that you just, you don't know what you're made of until you confront the crisis. But I can tell you, we can see what Donald Trump is made of. He's scared silly. This guy is peeing his pants. He's so afraid of going to prison. And he knows he's going to go to prison. And he's going to lose his empire. And it's looking now like, you know, the state of New York is looking to put his daughter in prison for tax fraud, among other frauds. I mean, there was all that stuff with, what was it, 50 Wall Street, whatever that building was that Trump owned, where both Ivanka and I believe it was Eric were in on some kind of sales scheme and the DA almost brought charges against them. There were a whole bunch of complaints. I mean, this is the bottom line. He's trying to avoid jail. People say, oh, he's playing six dimensional chess. No, he doesn't want to go to jail. People are saying, oh, well, in fact, I have said he's feathering his nest for the future, right? He's building his list of supporters. He's trying to get people on his side. He's going to milk them as much as he can. He's going to have a TV network afterward. All that probably true. But 
the level of vigor, the level of energy, the level of, I mean, flying in the Speaker of the House of Representatives from the state of Michigan and the majority, the Senate Majority Leader, these two Republican leaders from Michigan, flying them into Washington, D.C. for a meeting at the White House, that goes way beyond trying to get your Republican supporters to feel nice about you. This is not some Glenn Beck move, you know, where you lose your gig on Fox News and so you start your own TV network. This is not some Ron Paul thing where you lose your election to the House of Representatives and so you decide to start publishing a newsletter. Ron Paul is still publishing the newsletter, right? Rightwingcrankery.com or whatever it is. And making a living off it. But, you know, this is not that. This is a man who does not believe in democracy, who thinks that that cooperation is for suckers, that the world is made up of two kinds of people, killers and losers. He has said that in at least two of his books, that he was taught this by his father. And if you're not a killer, you're a loser. And there's nothing in between. Good, normal people who believe in the rule of law and just do their job every day and raise their families and put their kids through school, that doesn't exist in Donald Trump's world. You're either a killer or a loser. And he has been a killer his entire life. And now he's been very successful as a killer as president. We have a quarter million dead Americans. And the election results say, hey, Donald, you're a loser. And he's not dealing with it well. In fact, there are psychologists suggesting that he's experiencing hypomania, which is this, you know, grandiosity and, and you get super voluble. You're constantly, you know, speed wrapping and talking and not sleeping. And it's mania. And it sure looks that way. And that's often triggered by what you would call a, a mental breakdown. I mean, this is a guy who has been hiding the fact that he is not a billionaire his whole entire life. He's been making up myths about himself, you know, calling reporters and, and pretending to be a guy named John Barron and talking about how, how uh, Marla Maple said it was the best sex ever and getting that as the headline in the, in the New York Post or whatever the tabloid was. This is how he has lived his life, running a grift, running a scam. And it, and, and it no doubt started when he was in, when he was in uh, elementary school or early, you know, middle school or high school, I'm not sure what grade he was in when, when his parents finally said, that's it, we can't stand this guy. There's something wrong with him. He is broken. We're going to send him off to a private school. No real military academy would take him. So they sent him to a pretend military academy where everybody wore uniforms and saluted and they had ex-military as teachers, but it wasn't really a military academy. And then he got out and he hired people to take his, his exams for him. His niece says he hired somebody to take his SAT. One of his teachers said he was the stupidest person ever and rarely showed up for class. And God only knows who wrote his exams. I mean, keep in mind, this was in the 60s. I, you know, I, I was living out in East Lansing. And one of, one of my best friends started a little business. I mean, it was actually legal back then. This must have been 68 where he was running ads in the local underground paper. It was called The Paper, by the way. In fact, I lived at the office where the paper was written and published. It was called The Paper Office, and it was kind of the local hippie crash pad. And he was running ads in the paper saying, hey, you want to buy a term paper? I'll write the term paper for you, 30 bucks. And he made a good living because there were no shortage of rich kids at MSU who were more than willing to pay to have a term paper written. This is Donald Trump. This is his life story. He's always gotten his way. And for the first time in a big way, he's not getting his way. He's not accepting it. And he's willing to break our country. He's willing to destroy the future of our children and grandchildren just to avoid going to jail, just to avoid being called a loser, just to avoid his father's voice in his head. This man is mentally ill. And Mike Pence should be invoking the 25th Amendment right now and bringing the cabinet together and getting him out. And the rest of us need to call it what it is. It's sedition and treason. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. 
Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Brad in Prattville, Alabama. Hey, Brad, what's on your mind today? I've noticed over the last couple of weeks you've been talking about how we needed to spread and get more progressive AM, especially here in you know some of the red states where we have absolutely nothing other than XM, free speech TV, and probably the closest thing to anything slightly progressive would be NPR. Are there any organizations that you know of that are on the ground now that are promoting trying to get some more progressive radio in, in red states such as Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi? Sadly, generally speaking, no. And in fact, there's been a series of articles. There was one on Daily Co's, D-A-I-L-Y-K-O-S dot com, about the state of radio and how across the South, there are a whole bunch of radio stations that are actually owned and operated by colleges. They were originally supposed to be campus stations where people would learn how to do radio or they would program in the public interest or whatever that are carrying Rush Limbaugh and other right-wing commercial programming, which is pretty weird. There is the Pacifica Network, uh, pacifica.org, which runs, uh, Pacifica owns five stations, and then there's uh, probably two or three hundred that are affiliated with Pacifica. We're on quite a few of those stations. Um, I don't know, I'm pretty sure we're not on any of them in Alabama. I'm not even sure if there are any in Alabama that are Pacifica affiliates, but I'd be surprised if there weren't. But yeah, SiriusXM, uh, which you're listening on SiriusXM, is great. I mean, you know, they, they've maintained this progressive channel, the Progress 127 channel, uh, for years and years. And I know people are buying, you know, the subscriptions to SiriusXM just to get a progressive voice. But there really Definitely. needs to be progressive yeah. radio around the country. Yeah, there you go, Brad. And I'll tell you, you know, like one of the better progressive stations in the country, KTNF up in Minneapolis, is, uh, you know, owned by uh, just, uh, you know, regular guy, you know, who I don't know if he wants to be named on the air, but and it was started by Janet Robert, uh, who just did a, a spectacular job. And she's just a regular person, too. And uh, her husband's an ex-congressman. And but they're not, you know, billionaires or anything like that. And they started this little radio station and it's doing really, really well as a progressive radio station. And, and uh, you know, and, and part of it is because the listeners to, to, to KTNF AM 950 uh, will call up sponsors and say, hey, I'm supporting you. I mean, there's a real sense of support. Um, we need more of that. We need more entrepreneurs around the country who are willing to uh, pitch in and start a radio station. Same thing here in Portland. Um, it's a low-power FM, but because it's in a metro area, pretty much all of Portland can get X-ray FM. Um, and then they got a, they have a repeater now on the other side of the Columbia River in Vancouver, Washington as well. And that, again, was started by a local guy, Jefferson Smith, who had been an activist. He, he started the bus project way back in the day, once ran for city council. Actually, he was a member of the, uh, of the House of Representatives here in, in uh, Oregon for a couple of years. And now he's running this radio station. He does a show just before mine in the morning. And, uh, you know, I would encourage anybody listening to me right now who has any interest in this topic and what you and I are talking about, Brad, to reach out to to uh, you know to the ownership to the leadership of KTNF or the you know the people there or to X-ray FM to Jefferson I know you know he's very public and v- very visible he does a show and and ask how how can I do this you know because yeah. these are not wealthy people who started these stations um, these are average people who are willing to be entrepreneurs now it's tough being an entrepreneur starting a small business which is essentially what these things are it's just it's it's a it's not it's not for everybody you got to be willing to do it but but you know 
there's a lot of people out of work right now, and maybe some of some of them are willing to pull together some investors and pull together, you know, some resources. And uh, X-ray FM is a nonprofit here in Portland. KTNF is for profit in Minneapolis. WCPT in Chicago, for profit station. Um, you know, it, it, its owner is a little more wealthy, but it's it's still it's a great station. I did a special for them yesterday, a two-hour labor special that we did. Um, so. And there are other stations around the country as well. I don't want to start, you know, going through a long list. It'll start sounding like I'm, I'm just advertising here. But uh, <laughs> it is possible to do. And this is a time of real crisis for AM radio after Clear Channel has gone, or what used to be Clear Channel, has gone bankrupt either two or three times now. And what used to be Cumulus has gone bankrupt at least once uh, in both cases because they got the Mitt Romney types involved, you know, the, 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 the vulture funds. And so there are radio stations available for sale. There are licenses, low power FM licenses, where particularly in a city, in a metro area, the same thing in in, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, um, Grand Rapids, Michigan. I mean, we're we're in these small stations all over the country. So it's possible. It's something that's doable. And uh, but, uh, Brad, I don't know of any organization. I, you know, I've uh, I wrote an open letter to Tom Steyer uh, a year ago begging him, you know, don't run for president. Put your money into buying. uh, In fact, at the time, Clear Channel was for sale for one point two billion dollars. And that was like 800 radio stations. And probably half of them had a right winger on them. And I was like, you can just buy this, you know, there's fifteen hundred radio stations with right wing hate radio on them and probably 30 with progressive stuff on it in commercial radio stations in the country. So anyhow. well, one of the things that I've noticed is that when I, you know, when I speak to my neighbors, people who are just diehard Republicans, when we sit down and we just talk about the issues, we agree. 80% of the time, and they get these talking sure. points. And, I, you know, I've, I've worked in construction for the last 15 years. My father-in-law, who actually turned me on to your show, is a truck driver. And I will say, I, you know, I was always a hardcore Republican, so I thought, until I started listening to your show. And then I started realizing, you know what, I agree with this guy more than I disagree with him. And it was a, I mean, it just really almost opened up my eyes coming from someone who used to listen to nothing but right-wing radio and Fox News. And then I start realizing that, hey, half of what they're telling me, if not more, is just completely a fabrication. And I feel like if we can get more progressive voices out there, there'll be so, so many more people that'll realize, you know what, I do want to save Social Security. Um, you know, this is this is not what I've always believed. I do believe in Medicare and I do believe in this. And we, we could see a huge shift here in the South. I think you're right, Brad, and all over the country. And I think that this is one of the areas where uh, the Democratic Party and progressive or even just even corporate Democrats, you know, right across the board uh, have really dropped the ball. I, you know, I've referred a couple of times in the last month or so to, you know, when uh, a bunch of us with Air America made a pilgrimage to D.C. back in, I think it was 2006, and met with a bunch of members of Congress. And, And, you know, we have been begging Democrats and progressive funders and donors, the Bloombergs and the Steyers of the world and and whatnot, and and the Democracy Alliance folks for years to fund progressive radio. They did, you know, they helped fund Air America for about three years. And then they said, you guys are on your own. And Air America went bankrupt on a $17 million bankruptcy, which is, you know, like 30 seconds of revenue for for some of these guys. You know, it's nothing. So, yeah, Yeah. Brad, I'm with you. Brad, I got to run. I'm sorry we're hitting the break. But thank you for the call. Spot on. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And and you can also, by the way, you can check out the whole Pacifica network. Uh, As I said, we're on Pacifica stations as well. Pacifica.org. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and uh, picking up your calls. Jerry in Lansing, Michigan. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Well, I was uh, my dad was in the Second World War and uh, he was in Germany, in Europe. And I was thinking about the invasion in Normandy. If the leaders of the Republican Party had been the Allied commanders, and and I can imagine the headline on that was on June sixth. On June seventh, the headline in America would have been "Invasion Cancelled." Allied commanders fear tweet from Hitler and Truman. 
What mm-hmm. kind of courage does the Republican Party have? If they're afraid of a tweet, we'd be speaking German right now. Yeah. And, so far, we have Mitt Romney you know, and, and Ben Sass. And I, I right, in fact, right. when I get off the air, I'm going to send them both a tweet saying thank you for being patriots, even well, though I disagree and, with almost everything they stand for. And they're still standing with Mitch McConnell to block any kind, as are David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. They're all standing with Mitch McConnell to block any kind of aid to Americans. But still, uh, they're at least standing up to this proto-fascist in the White House. Excuse me. Yeah. And also, I wondered if we couldn't start a... Uh, we had profiles in courage. Could we start a profiles in cowardice or in treason? And also, uh, Benedict Barnold, okay, we should do something about him. I have one question for you, though, talking about with the idea of how do we unite the country? Well, our problems, in my mind, started when Reagan eliminated the Fairness Doctrine. That's what brought us to Limbaugh and Fox and MSNBC. We have allowed people to gravitate to places where they only have their personal prejudice reinforced, and they never hear the other side. And I think that that's one of the reasons that our country is so divided. Yeah, I don't entirely disagree. The Fairness Doctrine was much more limited than most people realize. It didn't say that if you carry three hours of Rush Limbaugh, you have to carry three hours of Tom Harbin. What it said was when a radio or television station offers an editorial opinion, in other words, when the owner or management, I used to work at Channel 6 in Lansing, WJIM-TV. This was back when I was 17 years old. I was a floor director there. And it was a great job. They, they even had an in, you know, a little cafeteria and lunchroom uh, where we had, uh, they fed us. You know, it was a really good meal. But in any case, when I was working at WJIM-TV, as the floor director, I would manage the guy who owned the radio station. WJIM was named after Jim, who was the kid of the family who owned the, tel- or the television station. Excuse me. They also had a radio station, WJIM Radio. And he would go on the air and he would say, here's my opinion. He was the owner of the television station, and he would say, here's my opinion. I think that, uh, you know, uh, we shouldn't build this new bridge, uh, you know, to connect the Potter Park Zoo to whatever. And because he did that, he would then have to be followed by a member of the community saying the opposite. So if he gave two minutes, the community member got two minutes. But it was only the owner of the station. It was only the editorial voice of the station. If he had chosen to put on a program, you know, the Joe Pine show back in that day or something like that, there didn't need to be any balance for that. So, you know, the Fairness Doctrine uh, did two things. Number one, what I just described. And number two, it required that radio and television stations actually produce or not carry uh, what was called programming in the public interest, which was interpreted to mean news at the bottom of the hour on radio and news for at least a half hour during prime time on television. And the networks produced that news at great expense, really high quality news, bureaus all over the world, and they all lost money on it because it was the price of their licenses. Um, you know, that they had to have that. So when the Fairness Doctrine went away, that was the major impact. I I was living in Germany at the time when Reagan uh, nuked the Fairness Doctrine. And I remember driving down the street in the Autobahn listening to this story about how the, you know, the the Fairness Doctrine is gone now and thinking, okay, that's, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be the end of news. And sure enough, within six months, the news division at CBS, CBS News, was put under the supervision of the vice president for entertainment programming. It had, it had gone from being something that they lost money on, but they provided really a public service. They lost money on because that was the cost of keeping their license. It went from that to being something that would produce a profit. And, they, and what happened with the news then was that it went from being these are the things that real serious journalists and scholars believe every American should know about. It went from that to whatever's going to get the most eyeballs. If it bleeds, it leads. What's the most sensational, weird thing out there? That's what we're going to cover. And that is the kind of mentality that brought us Donald Trump and the, and the Republican primaries. Jerry, excuse me, i got to run, but thank you for the call on the Tom Hartman program. Viagra for your brain. This is the Tom Hartman program. Our book club book for today is Talk Radio's America by Brian Rosenwald, subtitled How an Industry Took Over a Political Party, 
that then took over the United States. This is from the introduction. August 1, 1988 marked the beginning of the long road to President Donald Trump. But even political junkies took little notice of the fateful events that unfolded that day as a failed disc jockey and former Kansas City Royals executive named Rush Hudson Limbaugh III made his national radio debut. Only a small audience tuned in. So poorly commemorated was the moment that we don't even know how many stations broadcast day one of Limbaugh's syndicated program. Limbaugh claims the show began on 56 affiliates, while other counts range from 57 and 87. From the beginning, the show was brash, entertaining, controversial, and boundary-pushing. Before Limbaugh, this sort of programming did not exist outside major cities. In 1983, there were just 59 talk radio stations nationwide, and the program on many of these station, those stations consisted of advice shows, stayed interviews, and caller-driven discussions of everything from neighborhood schools to abominable snowmen. Most talk radio programming focused on local concerns, and most of the industry's stars, such as Larry King and Sally Jesse Raphael, had left-of-center views but rarely shared them. At the time of Limbaugh's national debut, talk radio had negligible political impact. In talk radio hotbeds such as Boston, hosts might influence local and statewide policy debates, especially on visceral issues such as seatbelt laws. But talk radio was not a partisan force, and it had no role in national politics. In fact, the wall-to-wall -wall conservative political talk stations that dominate the AM airwaves today were impossible until 1987, thanks to a regulation called the Fairness Doctrine. That year, however, the Federal Communications Commission eliminated the policy, which required broadcasters of opinionated programming on controversial issues to offer an array of viewpoints. In this more permissive environment, Limbaugh would go on to revolutionize the radio business. In doing so, he helped unintentionally to spawn a major new political player. Within a decade, the broadcast format he inaugurated aired on more than a thousand stations and kept millions company as they commuted, worked, and shouted back at their radios. It took just a few years before conservative talk radio began to influence national politics and public policy. That influence only grew throughout the decades as the business changed. Over the course of the 1990s and early 2000s, the, numbers of, the number of nationally syndicated talk shows rose dramatically, and the content of talk radio programs became increasingly political and conservative. Liberal pundits and some scholars agree on the broad outlines of the story. Conservative station executives conspiring with their Republican allies built a format modeled on Limbaugh's program, and thousands of Limbaugh wannabes cropped up all over the country. Executives, hosts, and politicians turned talk radio into an appendage of the Republican Party, using the platform to get Republicans elected and advance the party's agenda. The success of talk radio led to the development of partisan and ideological cable news networks, and some hosts complemented their radio shows with primetime cable programs. Eventually, this content found a home in the new digital sphere, with equally strident cheerleaders proliferating on blogs and other online publications. This narrative makes sense, especially to liberals. After all, many conservative media executives and their corporate political action committees donate to Republican candidates, and most hosts champion conservative candidates and causes. This narrative is wrong. In reality, the story of talk radio's emergence as a popular conservative format and the impact it had on American politics weaves together two distinct complex tales. Neither has anything to do with the conspiracy to create a media servant of the Republican Party. The first describes how talk radio spread across America and the process saving AM radio from financial ruin. Limbaugh had no intention of affecting elections or legislation and no inkling that he could. Nor did any of his early successors. The executives who gave these hosts a chance also had no interest in political outcomes. Hosts and their bosses were in business. They wanted to captivate listeners and make money and they discovered, essentially by accident, that conservative political talk in the mouth of an entertaining personality achieved this. Conservative hosts had strong opinions, but their primary goal was, and still is, financial gain. And it is because they realized financial gain that more and more stations invested in their style and content while divesting from competing formats. The second story concerns talk radio's transformation, after 1995, into an almost entirely conservative and doctrinaire medium that eventually spawned successors in other media, took over the Republican Party, and reshaped it in hosts' and listeners' image. Limbaugh was a great innovator, but he didn't change American media and politics all at once or on his own. 
In conservative talk radio's early days, hosts shared stations with liberal talkers and apolitical programs. There was not an immediate sense that conservative radio was the future either. But gradually, its success snowballed thanks to trial and error in the radio business, regulatory changes, political events, happenstance, and most importantly, listener behavior. Hosts also got a boost from marginalized conservative Republican politicians who realized that talk radio would enable them to circumnavigate the mainstream media and deliver their message directly to voters. The book, Talk Radio's America. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And a special, by the way, a special thanks to our crew who are pitching in and working out and doing yeoman's work in a scary time. Sean in the studio and Joyce in the studio answering phones and being very, very careful and social distancing and everything else. I'm here at home. Nate is doing our video work from home. So if you're watching us on YouTube or on Free Speech TV or on Facebook Live or on Twitter, you may see glitches from now and then. And if you're listening on the radio, the audio quality is is not quite what it typically is. But, you know, we're doing the absolute best that we can. And I think we're doing a pretty damn good show at that. And I just want to acknowledge uh, everybody who's working with me and, and Nigel and Sue, who Nigel, who keeps up our website, who are working from home and Sue Nethercutt, who does our newsletter every day with a list of all the articles that and every story that I've talked about during the show in it. Sue's Daily Stack and it's free and you can find it all over TomHartman.com. Patrick and Jerry Lynn, who put together our podcasts, and Jamie, who does our hardcore webmastering stuff. He's working from home. He's out in, I believe, Kentucky or Tennessee. But uh, we got people scattered literally all over the globe working on this program, Nigel and Sewer in the UK. And Nate, thank you all. And thank you for listening and, and watching and supporting our, our nonprofit stations and Free Speech TV and supporting our for-profit stations and, the, and letting their advertisers know that you're listening. You know, it's going to be a tough time for our business, just like it is for every other business. We are going to get through this. We're doing everything we can. But hey, it's a pandemic. So we'll all get over that, right? We could all agree to that. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 